Today we're continuing, almost finished with, our series on the New Testament book of Revelation. It's 22 chapters. Today we're on chapter 21. So we've been at it for a while. We've had long enough to learn that this book is, is filled with visions. Uh, it's a lot like the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and some portions of Daniel in that regard. Uh, a lot of symbolic visions. And one of the things that we've learned over and over and over again is that it gives very detailed descriptions of symbols that represent realities. So not every description in this book is a description of reality. It's a description of a symbol that represents some reality. We'll talk about those symbols and realities today. Today specifically asking this question, what are the realities that human hearts are longing for? And what realities does God promise to answer those deep longings? Jim's going to read for us this morning. Thank you. Our scripture this morning is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5 and 23 through 25. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis talks about joy a lot, not just because he wound up marrying a woman named Joy, he talked a lot about joy before he married joy. <laughs> and when he talks about joy, he, he's talking about kind of this haunting experience of pleasure that we have that sometimes breaks into our reality. When, when we see something so beautiful or we hear, hear a song so powerful or, or we experience a moment so lovely in a relationship, an interaction with another person, that, that it just begins to, to 
penetrate our souls in a way that says, I want more of whatever that was. There, there's, a, there's a deep desire that, that the experience awakens, but the experience itself can't satisfy it. I don't usually have that kind of experience when I'm looking at artworks. But I did last November. Trisha and I got to go to Washington, D.C. for the first time ever for both of us. And, um, you know, everything in D.C. is on federal time, so it closes at 5 p.m. So we would do everything we could between the hours of 9 and 5 to see all the fun stuff and, and visit all the neat places. And then there's this one portrait gallery, part of the uh, Smithsonian that stays open till 7 p.m. So, you know, five o'clock, they boot us out of the other places. We go spend time walking through this portrait gallery and there's Rembrandt's there. There's all kinds of amazing, there's a painting there, an original by Da Vinci. Like I've never seen some of this stuff. And uh, your head is just full and spinning. And I walked around a corner and joy happened. This kind of C.S. Lewis described, I don't know what just happened in my soul, but Bam, there it was, this painting hanging on a wall. It's about this big, not very big. Uh, painted in the 1600s by a Dutch man named Herman Softleven. It's called Imaginary River Landscape. That's the English translation anyway. So it's not even a painting of a real place on this planet. Um, I often look at paintings of landscapes and, and I think to myself, I want to find a place on this planet that looks like that and go there. You know, you see these nature painters who paint these uh, great waterfalls in Yellowstone, like, ooh, I'd love to go to Yellowstone and stand in that same place and look at that same thing. That would be really cool. But when I looked at this picture, something weird happened. When I looked at this picture, I was like, I want to go inside that painting. I don't, I don't want to go to a place that looks like that. I don't want to find a place on this planet that looks kind of like that. There is something about this, and I'm not that guy. Like, I don't respond that way to very many things very often. I was totally unprepared for it. You ever had that moment? Was it the song? Was it the, the, the meal with friends where everything about it was perfect? Was it? Was, was it a moment at a wedding or the birth of a child or, the, or in your memory remembering the first time you met your best friend ever? Whatever it is that awakens in you this sense that, that I, there are some longings in the human soul that can only be satisfied by something different, something I've never seen before, I've never experienced before, something new. Today, my goal is to name some of those longings and to stir them up and fan them into flame and to tell you good news that those deep longings of the human heart can be satisfied by the God who has made himself known in the scriptures and he has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the first longing I want to talk about today, a longing for a new home. 
That's what this part of Revelation is getting at when it says in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, for a moment, I'm going to say something that might sound new to some of you, that the home that Christians are longing for is not heaven. I'm not saying that because we have friends from Sherith Israel with us today. I'm saying that because even if they weren't here, many of us in the room would need to reorient our thinking. A lot of the Christian tradition has thought more about tradition than about Scripture and therefore has said the thing that Christians are longing for, the home we're longing for, is someplace off this planet, someplace away from here, someplace away from bodies where there's, you know, angels and harps and halos and no. The Scriptures say our home is heaven and earth. Our home is part of the present created order. New heaven and new earth, it's renewed, it's restored, and yet it's a home that Scripture calls a new heaven and a new earth. Um, What's new about it? Well, some things won't be there. like tears and death and grief and pain. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall mourning nor crying. Now that word for crying, in English crying sounds like it's referring to tears coming out of your eyes, but the Greek word used here is about sounds, not tears. There will be no more wailing, no more moaning, No more of those sounds that come from the deep place in our soul because we're filled with grief and sorrow. In this new home, those things won't be present. Pain won't be present. For the former things have passed away. Now that phrase, former things, is borrowed from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, he refers to the former things passing away as he talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we have to pay attention to what the text is saying. Remember that it's using symbols. It says that the sea was no more at the end of verse 1, right? The first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And if you were to take that as a straight-on description of reality, you would think, oh my gosh, somehow... Christians are supposed to believe that God is going to absolutely destroy this planet and replace it with a new one that has no oceans on it. Remember, though, this is a description of a symbol that represents a reality. And so we have to ask what the symbol stands for. Notice that this description of first earth passing away and the sea being no more is is exactly parallel to the phrase in verse 4 that talks about God wiping away every tear and death shall be no more. The sea shall be no more in verse 1, but death shall be no more in verse 4. Well, and, and the first earth will pass away according to verse 1. And verse 4 says, there won't be mourning or crying or pain before, because the former things have passed away. This is not a claim that oceans don't exist in eternity. 
This is a claim that Ocean is a great symbol for death and suffering and sorrow in the first century. Why would first century people hear, hear good news and the promise that the sea will be no more? Not because they hated the ocean, not because they hated large bodies of water, but because in their world, sea was a symbol for chaos. Sea was a place you went to die, especially if you live on the Mediterranean where the weather is quite unpredictable. Getting on a ship is taking your life in your own hands. And um, so this is a symbol saying that when God is finished renewing the good world that he has created, when he removes from it everything that has twisted and distorted his good purposes in creating this world, when, when death and tears and crying and pain are gone forever, when, well, verse 25 says, <laughs> the gates of this new city will never be shut because there won't be any night. Why do you shut gates at night? Because you're afraid. When the former things have passed away, when God has finished renewing his good creation, there will be nothing to be afraid of. There will be no good reason to close a gate at night. There will be no enemies trying to sneak in under cover of darkness. Night is, is the time of darkness in the ancient world. Now, we have enough artificial light that it's never really dark where we live. But if you lived in the first century, in the Roman Empire, you're reading these words and you're going, yeah, this is a great promise. No more night means no more wondering about who's lurking in the shadows. No more fear that the predator's going to sneak in and eat my livelihood at night. That's the home we're longing for. We are longing for God to break into our world and take away everything that is real but broken about this world. So that what is left behind is what is real but whole. We're not waiting for him to take away the physical and leave us with only the spiritual. That is not what Christians believe. It is not what the scriptures teach. We are not waiting for him to break in and take away all the secular stuff and leave behind only the sacred. We're waiting for him to renew all of creation. Your heart and my heart are longing for a home. A home in which... We don't have to be afraid. A home in which we can finally lay down and rest. And just enjoy. Without fear that the phone is going to ring and the news coming from the other end will cause us to erupt in tears. Without fear that at any moment the sweetest parts of life can be interrupted by the most broken. You're longing for that home. I'm longing for that home. That's why I do weird things when I walk around corners in art museums and I'm not expecting it. There's something captured in beautiful moments in this world that says we were made for this home but radically transformed and renewed. We're also longing for a new city. Now, again... Not a direct description of reality. You know, God is not saying, don't like Atlanta. 
want you to pick up roots and move to a new city. City represents people in the scriptures. If you were to read the Old Testament and its descriptions of the city of Zion or Jerusalem, sometimes Zion and Jerusalem are literal descriptions of a place on this planet, but sometimes the city of Jerusalem itself begins to stand in for the people of God. And so God's promises to renew Zion are actually promises that he will renew his people. And God's promises to restore Jerusalem after seasons of destruction are actually metaphors for the way he's going to restore his people. I'm not trying to do some like Christian spiritualization of the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament writers actually wrote it that way and we're trying to read it faithfully as all people who take the scriptures seriously do. So if you read Isaiah chapter 60, you start to pick up on some of those threads, and it's actually a scripture text that we used in our call to worship. Um, The Lord rises upon you, his glory appears over you, nations will come into your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. These are promises about the new city standing in for how God will renew his people. If you keep reading, you find it that God says to his people through Isaiah the prophet, the kings of the nations are going to bring their riches into the city. They will come there to worship our God. And they will bring with them their riches to beautify the city. Is that Isaiah's literal description of a public works project and the way to raise funds for beautifying? No, it's it's all a description of how God promises to work through his people. We are longing for, created for, a kind of community very different from the one that we experience presently a kind of community of of people and peoples from all over the world who do not glory in themselves, but who are devoted to God. This is the reason that verse 2 of our text describes this new city. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Complete devotion to the God we love a community where people are more focused on his glory than on our own. A community in which there's not fragmentation and division, but in which all nations are united. Right? Verse uh, 24 says, By the light of this city, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut. And if you go back and read Isaiah chapter 60, all those images come from Isaiah. We're longing. Every person on this planet wants to be part of a people like that. A people where we're not constantly warring, suspicious, but united. And a 
a community in which no nation hoards its resources. Verse 24 says, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Where, where everybody in the, in the people of God is wanting to beautify the people of God. Not just kind of wanting to beautify our own little corner. Even if you aren't aware of it, you're longing for that. You're longing to be part of a new city. How do, we, how do we get there? Well, we can work hard for peace. Please, let's do. That is not a bad idea. It never is. But we have to ask, will it be enough? If we work for peace, will it be enough? Sarah Elizabeth and I, a few years ago, had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem together. And um, one of the places where my soul comes most alive on this planet is uh, Jerusalem and particularly the old city and uh, we were walking down a street that's something like this one um, it wasn't this bright uh, the sun had gone down and we were kind of on a treasure hunt looking for certain kinds of architectural features and taking pictures of those and, and um, if you could imagine a doorway over here but you only see the top half of the door because there's a set of steps that went down and into an, an underground bakery. And um, one of the bakers caught our eye as we were walking by and invited us to come in. Uh, we sat and had tea, and some of you have heard this story before, and you know they were really worried that she wasn't married yet. Um, it's taken care of now. Thank you, Scott. Um, but one of the things that, that they left us with after unsuccessful attempts to teach me how to make bread um, and lots of delicious tea. Uh, one of the things they left us with was tell everyone who's part of your group, tell everyone when you get back to the United States how proud we are of our city. Because here in our city, Muslims and Jews and Christians live in peace. And we want it to stay this way. What a beautiful thought. Those three men wanted you to know that. They wanted me to know that. But for every three people like that, there are 300 or 3,000 or maybe more who don't want that. It's beautiful, but will it be enough? I think that's why the scriptures say that this holy city, this new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God. When our efforts to pursue peace are building on the foundation of what he is doing and what he is building, then it will be lasting. But he has to meet this longing for us. Our efforts alone won't be enough, right? The city is lit by the light that comes from his glory. We're longing for that, even if we don't know it. 
It's all building up to this deeper longing for a new temple. Okay, again, you know what I'm going to say, right? Is this a direct description of reality or is this a symbol? It's a symbol. If you want to start a war in a hurry, tell someone you're thinking about building a new temple in Jerusalem. Right? Those are, this is a safe place to say that out loud. But there are places in our world where it's not safe to speak those words, right? We're not not thinking literally of that. How, How do we know? Because the text decodes its own symbolism for us. Verse 22 does something strange. It says, and I saw, now that's not strange. The book of Revelation is full of phrases like that. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw all these visions. There's no place else in the book that it says, here's what I didn't see. Unique. It says, I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple here represents the, 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 the place where you can most intimately experience the presence of God. And that presence here is not tied to a structure. It's simply him. I went to a conference once led by a a Scottish pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, he said something that just like flipped my head upside down to the point that when we left the conference, I started writing notes in the back of a taxi. This is before Uber, right? And so I'm taking the taxi to the airport. I'm writing notes. I get in the airport. I'm still like just trying to decode what he just said a few minutes ago so much that I was the last guy on the plane that day and uh, almost missed the flight. What did he say? He said, we live in a who universe, not a what universe. Wait, that's really powerful. We live in a who universe, not a what universe. The, the, the most fundamental realities in our universe are about relationships. Not things, not objects, but personal beings having a relationship with one another. Now, sometimes it's human beings having relationships with one another. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, second great commandment. And sometimes it's personal beings who aren't both human. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First great commandment. And I'm going, oh, yeah, Jesus says Sinclair Ferguson is right. (laughs) We live in a who universe, not a what universe. And sometimes we can get so caught up in the what here that we forget the who. Are we longing for a new home? Yes. Are we longing to be part of this new city, this new kind of human relating and community? Yes. Why? Because those are the ways that we will most enjoy our God. We were created to know God himself and to find complete joy and satisfaction in him, to have an irresistible delight 
Not in something, but in someone. Now that someone loves also to give us a new home and a new city because he's generous and kind in that way. But, but the fundamental craving and longing of the human heart is for someone irresistible. If you want to see what happens when we get the wrong who in the slot of the irresistible one, Look to Russia. Vladimir Putin is trying to be the irresistible one. My vision for the world is the one that should be, uh, that no one should resist. And if they resist, I'm going to destroy them. I am the irresistible one. I want to bend the, I want to use power to bend the world toward my vision. And when the wrong who is put in the place of the irresistible one, everything starts to go wrong. It's the whole point of biblical condemnations of idolatry. When you put what isn't God, the irresistible one, in the place of God, the irresistible one, everything else goes wrong. Battle of Vladimir Putin. Guess what? You and I are just like that. It's the reason I get so angry at the dog and my family and you and everything else when something messes up my day off. My vision for my day off should be irresistible. How dare anyone or anything mess with it? Where's all the anger coming from? I got this deep longing for someone irresistible in my universe. I'm just putting myself there. It's never going to work. It's what's behind jealousy. We talked about this in our Tuesday night community group. Thank you, middle schoolers. Thank you, everyone, part of that conversation, right? It's behind jealousy. She's not the irresistible one, I am. He's not the irresistible one. Why are you paying attention to him? Look at me. Every time we feel jealous, it's because we long for someone irresistible in our world and then we distort that and put ourselves there instead of the one who truly is so lovely that you if you could see him for who he is you would never want to resist him it's what's behind pornography a real person might resist you it's much safer to interact with images which have to do what you say when you click, you want to be irresistible. And that's a twisting of the real thing you're actually longing for. I want to know the one who is irresistible. Who is he? I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is a symbol, not a literal animal. Sheep, fuzzy, 
wool four-legged. It's a symbol for Jesus who has taken on himself the role of the great Passover lamb. And the thing that draws us most to him is that he wants to bend the world toward himself. But the way he does it is not through power. It is through self-sacrificial love. That's what my heart is longing for. That's what every human heart is longing for.